This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of I Know That Face, the only podcast which honors the often unappreciated by the masses work of character actors. My name is Stephen Poison. My name is Andrew Carroll. Uh, usually this is the part where I talk about which character actor we're covering, but uh, this episode's a little different. And uh, something completely different. We're going to discuss instead some of our favourite movies of 2021 and select our top five. Before we talk about our favourite movies of 2021, I thought we could chat a little more broadly about the year as a sure. whole in cinema. I thought it was okay. I thought it was grand. Yeah. yeah. Just in comparison to 2020, I thought it was like, even though like nothing really came out in 2020... All that much, except for at the start of last year. Right. It uh, still blew 2021 out of the water, I think. Yeah. Because we had like Portrait of Lady on Fire, we had Parasite, we had Little Women. And those were my top three. Yeah. Of last year. Uncut Gems. Uncut Gems, exactly, yeah. yeah. Uh, the Lighthouse. Oh. Yeah. So already you've got five bangers there. <laughs> whereas we're only really, we're really only talking about five movies each this year. Whereas we talked about at least eight on last year's podcast, I think. Yeah, there was plenty of good films I saw, like a lot of 8s and 9s out of 10, but there wasn't really that movie where, whether it was a blockbuster or an indie or an arthouse film where you finish it and you're just like, instant masterpiece, the way I think we were with some of those movies. Yeah. Like, you were never really here in 2019 or something yeah. like that. And um, I should preface probably the conversation by saying, we are not professional critics. You know, we do the show. We could be. Someone reaches out to us. True. (laughs) We do the show around our day jobs and any professional writing we do around our, or any film writing we do is around our day jobs. So I know there was a couple of big titles I hadn't seen this year. Like I haven't caught up with Good Green Knight, The Last Duel. Um, I hadn't seen a couple of the Oscar movies Mm. this year. Venom 2, Let There Be Carnage. You know, can we really do a best of list without Venom 2? Yeah. (laughs) I'm sure you're the same as well. And also, at the time we're recording, a couple of uh, major movies like Titan, Don't Look Up, The Lost Daughter, The Hand of God, even The Matrix Resurrections. They're 2021 movies, but they just haven't been released yet. Yeah. Um, so, you know, take our list and uh, comments with a pinch of salt. But um, do you think there's any reasons why this year was lesser, you think? I don't know. Um, yeah, because it seemed like everything was coming out this year. Yeah. And right? almost none of it was good. <laughs> like there were so many films I was really excited for this year I was, and a lot of them were blockbusters like I was excited for Godzilla vs. Kong Last Duel uh, which I haven't seen Antlers solid you know, oh, solid right. okay yeah. French no, Dispatch French yes. Dispatch oh, I haven't seen that one yet chill out Wes yeah yeah um, <laughs> Last Night in Soho which I hear is okay Dune I thought was better than okay upper but, tier but still kind of like I love the craft. It was really cool. Did I kind of engage with it emotionally? Not really. No, yeah, yeah. yeah. Suicide Squad, I was a bit let down by... Yeah, well, uh, to be honest, I thought it was a... Like, you know how much I don't like these kind of movies. But I think I thought it was a pretty solid year for superhero movies, all things considering. Because I've seen most of them <laughs> that came <laughs> out right. this year. I thought Suicide Squad was pretty good. I thought it was funny. I thought it was kind of what the original one should have been. True. Um, It's definitely better than the original. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, but that's not hard. I hate these movies that try and like have their cake and eat it too. Where I feel like Mm. the Suicide Squad is trying to make this point about like, huh, Americans they go over to other people's countries and you know wreak havoc, and that movie just sort of does that. Yeah, (laughs) but I mean, it's a superhero film, so like grain of salt. True. And uh, Shang Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, I thought was pretty good. I haven't seen that. Yeah, overall, uh, Black Widow shite yeah and that kind of put me off Shang-Chi and the Eternals yeah Eternals also shite 
Uh, <laughs> I will say uh, Mad Dog Silk, really good in it. Uh, everything else about it is crap. I'll take uh, that. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't seen Spider-Man yet, but I am. I will admit, I am excited. I'm excited every time a Spider-Man movie comes out, and it's just a, and every time it's just another slap in the face. I'm not. Are they ever going to get off that bridge? Have you seen the same bridge in every trailer? <laughs> it's in New movie? York. I know, but it's just a Doc Ock being like, "Hello, Peter." Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I I love those Sam Raimi movies, and they've hyped that movie up so much that if like Jessica Jones isn't in it, if anyone, <laughs> if any like side character in Marvel that I really love isn't in it I'm going to be disappointed okay yeah, <laughs> fair enough, I, mean? yeah. <laughs> I think there were two big factors this year that were an issue and I think one of them was one of them a deadly virus that was one yeah. of them and then, but I also think there's another thing that's a bit more of a um, beginning to become a long running film problem yeah but uh, the, yeah obviously you know COVID has had a major impact I think in how we appreciate movies because during the first half of this year in Ireland like cinemas were closed and we were watching a lot of new stuff on our screens at home and a lot of big movies went straight to streaming Dublin International Film Festival in March where you, which I always loved because it kind of gives you a, a taste of sort of homegrown and international movies that might not have been on your radar otherwise yeah. but suddenly are like I've got to check this thing out that I hadn't heard about that all took place virtually this year and I'm, I'm kind of I'm glad I did get to see those movies on streaming service I'm delighted Diff did get to take place in some form but uh I don't think filmmakers, you know, make their movies with the intention for them to be watched for the first time on a TV screen or on yeah. a laptop screen. And I think, you know, in a good movie made with care, every camera angle or framing or line or sound has a reason for being the way it is. And I, I think it's much easier to appreciate those details and lose yourself in a movie story in a massive darkened room with yeah. a 10 to 30 foot screen and surround sound where ideally, you know, your phone is away, all outside distraction is removed if, if you have a good audience. And I know you don't always. Mm, <laughs> so, yeah. uh, but generally I think seeing in a movie in the theaters is the best way to do it. And, uh, yeah, even if you have like the biggest TV in your house at home, you know, or a projector, it's still a much smaller yeah. screen and a room filled with stimuli and the lure of your phone. And I think if you're streaming something on, um, you know, some sort of service and your Wi-Fi is a little slow, you know, the movie buffers yeah, and the quality becomes yeah. pixelated. And then that's a real drag and it takes you out of the movie. And uh, I just find there's a lot of times this year where even if I was watching a movie for the first time at home and I was really impressed by it, oftentimes I was still struggling to kind of fully immerse myself in it. And sometimes I'm not sure if that's the movie's fault or if it's because I'm not seeing it the way it was intended. Yeah. Um, which, uh, so that's an issue. Then I also think another COVID problem is that like so many highly anticipated 2021 movies were delayed. You know, like stuff like A Quiet Place 2, which was a movie I thought was pretty disappointing. Yeah, it was Black grand. Widow, yeah. And no Time to Die. <laughs> um, and then <laughs> Still more, haven't seen it. More artsy stuff like, you know, The French Dispatch, which I thought was fun, but a little self-indulgent, or mm. The Candyman reboot, which liked parts of but was a bit of a mess Halloween Kills Jesus that's my brick of the year that's the one I actually kind of like <laughs> fucking shit I Michael Myers I just like to see him uh, go crazy <laughs> yeah it would have been better had the director been up to the task true true <laughs> but anyway some of those movies I like more than others but I, I think all of them are flawed and you have to take into consideration the fact that like after seeing cool posters and trailers for all those movies but then having to wait a year to 18 yeah, months to, two to see them um, in a cinema because of COVID in that period of waiting they start to get built up in your head and you 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 know mm. the marketing is so effective and you really do start to think yeah No Time to Die is going to be so good mm -hmm. you know like Candyman is going to be the next great horror movie yeah. and then um, they come out and whether I think it's a massive movie like No Time to Die or something you know the decent like Candyman 
you're just always going to be disappointed <laughs> because they can never meet your expectations. And uh, I think that disappointment just makes their flaws kind of more apparent. Yeah. As I said, the only real blockbusters I thought were impressive this year were Dune and Nobody, the Bob Odenkirk movie. And that's not even really a blockbuster. I haven't seen it, yeah. Nobody's actually a lot of fun. But again, I went to see it. I had mm. a good time. I ate popcorn. Yeah. <laughs> but then, you know, I leave. I don't really think about it. Yeah, you know? yeah. I um, will say that, like, I think streaming might be making audiences worse as well. Because it's That's not something true. I I've experienced myself, but I've seen other people talk about it. Where it's like, oh, there's just people, like the, people have been on their phones in cinemas since phones have have existed to distract you at any rate. And I think streaming at home, especially with one eye on your phone and one eye on the TV screen, or sometimes both eyes on your phone, or sometimes you're just out of the room on your phone and the TV movie is still playing, will definitely contribute to making certain members of audience of audiences worse. Like the guy who answered a phone call during my screening of the Suicide Squad in the Odeon and Gulag. <laughs> like, hello? Yeah. Um, the worst. But it, If you're it, out there, fuck you. <laughs> but in terms of like the wider film industry problem, I imagine, I do believe that with the success of franchises like the MCU and the Fast and Furious, as well as things on the other end. like Fast you, and Furious 9, another kind of one that was like... I ah, completely didn't even see that one. It's okay. Yeah. It's grand. They go to space. Do they actually? Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, Tyrese Gibson and uh, Ludacris do. They are the only ones who went to space? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> wow, okay. That's a, that's actually a bold move. <laughs> um, but yeah, you have that. And then on the other end, you have these kind of like cheap Blumhouse-y horrors that cost less than a million to make or 10 million to make and make hundreds of million from teens and horror fans going to see them. And I just think a lot of traditional studios have moved towards nearly only making those movies you know you know franchises are super low budget stuff and lots of those movies i like like andrew you know me i like my happy death days you mm. know i like my kind of like we're gay <laughs> but i do feel like we've seen a real death of the sort of mid-budget adult orientated movie with stars whether it be kind of drama very much so yeah or genre movies and i think it's why you see martin scorsese or spike lee coen brothers and noah baumbach or Sophia Coppola, or even this year, you know, Jane Campion and Steven Soderbergh had mm. new movies out, but they're making them with streaming services, yeah. and they're not really getting proper cinema releases. And I think it's also why we're seeing this trend of starry limited series. Like, that's where these creative types who cut their teeth in that area of filmmaking, grew up loving that type of filmmaking, are mm. having to go. And just on TV, well, there was no movie I thought was masterpiece-level territory. There were a couple of TV shows I thought reached that level or came pretty close. Like, I loved Squid Game. I loved Midnight Mass. I loved Mare of Easttown. I loved The White Lotus. And I thought they were all, like, perfect mix of, like, great craft, timely important stories, great entertainment. But Squid Game and Midnight Mass were originally developed as movies. Uh-huh. And uh, had their story spread out to TV, probably due to that issue I mentioned that they, you know, found it harder to get made because they're like would be mid budget stuff. But all of those shows are kind of auteurist TV, like they're long movies, essentially, like in that while a lot of people obviously worked and there was this kind of one guiding voice on all of them and, you know, writing all the episodes or directing them. And there were always people who came from cinema. Mike White, who wrote School of Rock and, you know, wrote and directed a movie I love called Brad Status. He wrote and directed all the White Lotus. Hang Dong Hyuk made a couple of hit Korean movies before he made Squid Game. Uh, Gerald's Game director Mike Flanagan directed all of Midnight Mass and wrote all the episodes with some co-writers. And Mayor of Easttown had all its episodes written by Brad Inglesby, who wrote other grim character studies with things like Out of the Furnace or The Way Back. But And also that show, was, all the episodes were directed by Craig Zobel, who's like an acclaimed film director in his own right. Mm. And I'm, I'm delighted I have all these shows, and I think they were all incredible pieces of work. And maybe they were ended up working better as TV because you had all that time to tell the story or whatever. But there is bloat 
you know, yeah, and there absolutely. is, uh, I don't like waiting around a week or waiting for an episode or waiting until I have a chance to burn through an eight hour show. Yeah. And part of me would rather see the creators of those be able to take what made that series so good, but then like distill that into a movie's runtime and perhaps it would be better still, you know, like yeah. being like yeah. tighter and easier to watch. But I think all this is a roundabout way of saying that like mainstream cinema is inevitably going to get worse if all our talented people or voices of tomorrow, you know, future talents mm. are either having to make movies that won't play in cinemas or are moving to TV yeah. because it's the only place they can get their passion projects made. 2024, we'll see the release of Denis Villeneuve's Christine remake. Isn't ten, he, a he doing episode. a show with Jake Gyllenhaal or something? Oh yeah, and sure, they're fuck doing it, he is. <laughs> and they're doing a Dune spin-off show. Yeah. And the Batman spin-off show about the Penguin. Yeah. Colin Farrell on HBO as well. But that's going to be good. <laughs> yeah, probably, yeah. yeah. Uh, th- that's their Dune 2 uh, Batman spin-off show, which is the bit where I'm like, maybe a little much. Because yeah. isn't there like a Gotham PD show? But they already did a show called Gotham. Yeah. It's confusing. It we get into our top five anyway. Let's no, get to no it, yeah. being like Debbie Downers, yeah. all right? Because there were plenty of good movies yeah. we can talk about. Do you know that Jack Nicholson did a film with Marlon Brando? What's the name of that film? Riders of Justice. It's a club. That's a, that's a, that's a great business. It's, a, it's, a, it's an expanding industry. It's, it's... We gotta try it. Try what? Calling the empty man. <laughs> I don't like this dynamic at all. What happened? I'm looking for a truffle pig. We really don't know what happened. I fired you because you always overcooked the pasta. <laughs> you just have to shoot me! Did you know her? No, but I saw her die. Why, why do you want a pig? It's my pig. Oh, okay. Well, we're all in this now. All I need is a miracle. Coming in hot at number five is a movie that technically came out in 2020, but uh, didn't it's really... Our, it's our rules, so whatever. It's our rules, yeah. Like, when I when I do the gaming sections list, I uh, say, like, oh, you know, if there's a multiplayer game that you thought uh, was significant enough this year but came out in another year, feel free to add it in. So mm. And she doesn't ride a tight shift. <laughs> Obviously not, yeah, considering I'm, I've hemorrhaged writers over the last three years. No, Thanks kidding. for reminding me. I'm kidding. Andrew's great. So please submit to gaming at headstuff.org. Yes, please do that, yeah. Because yeah. uh, those last 40 podcast episodes didn't work. <laughs> um, yeah, so The Empty Man, which was a 2020 release, sure, but if a pandemic isn't an excuse for discovering films that disappeared in the few haze that was 2020, I don't know what is. And it came out, it came out on streaming this year anyway, which... Uh, Presumably led to more people discovering it as because VOD is natural you know, home on Disney Plus. <laughs> yeah, it's natural home on Disney Plus, and VOD is a bit of a bit of a wasteland, really. True. Um, Who paying paying twenty quid for a movie? I mean, exactly that you watch at home. Yeah, yeah, when you could just spend the same amount for two months of Disney Plus, and it might have come out last year, but it really gained like cult status this this year among like horror fans and people that like uh, love horror movies and stuff like that, which is something that usually takes about ten years to happen. Anyway, so the movie, The Empty Man is about James LaSombra, played by never better James Badgedale, uh, who is a grief-stricken ex-detective investigating the disappearance of his teenage next-door neighbour Amanda, played by Sasha Frolova. All clues point towards the Pontifex Institute, known as the Cult of the Empty Man to those in the know, 
And as James more James learns more about the Institute and what happened to Amanda, it becomes clear that the Empty Man has plans for him. So this is a pretty psychologically complex and rich, richly layered film that was kind of let down by the Disney Fox merger. A poor title and even worse marketing. The title's great when you've seen the movie, but it is a very bland and generic exactly, title. Yeah. Yeah. Like I was scrolling through Amazon the other night and came across a movie called The Midnight Man. Yes. Or there's The Bye Bye Man, Man as well. Slender Man. Slender Man, yeah. And like... The instant you see any of those movies, you're like, oh, God. Yeah, Keep it's going. true. Yeah. Would it have been better if it would come in called Topa? Maybe. Yeah. 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 La Sombra. La Sombra is like <laughs> the shadow. Yeah. Oh, is that what it means? Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah, isn't it? Wow. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> they should have hired me. Should, they should have hired you. Um, so it's it's like an everything in the kitchen sink kind of film in that it feels as if like nothing was cut out. Like the directors had intended to cut like six minutes out, but that had ended up being left in because the test screenings were so poor uh, on the 90, <laughs> on the 90 minute cut that the studio yeah, yeah. demanded. So they released the two hour and I think it's two hours and 15, I think yeah. uh, they released that cut. And like there's a monochrome giallo sequence, some gnarly teen suicide stuff that feels ripped straight out of J-horror. And the whole overall thing feels like true detective it really leaned into the cosmic horror it occasionally alluded to. Uh, and there's loads of other stuff as well. It's, it just feels like a really gnarly thriller most of the time. It's yeah. just, it's just everything. You look at it and it's like Gore Verbinski's like the ring. It looks, everything just kind of looks like it's just on the edge of rotting. Yeah, or kind of like Fincher 7 a little yeah, bit as well yeah yeah everything looks like it's just a little too dusty or a little too damp it's just ugh. you feel like if you touch something you might contract some kind of cold maybe mm. um, and it's all anchored by James Badgedale who we covered this year um, most mainly because I watched this movie and <laughs> thought oh wow this is great yeah. ring ring Stephen guess what I found <laughs> Um and I think on initial viewing it's it's like he, oh this guy's giving like a man against God performance but as I thought more about it and as you mentioned uh on the on our episodes, there's like a wry kind of dry humor in there that, along with the world of the film being utterly oblivious to uh, his grief over the death of his wife and son, uh, upends the char- the character. A lot of other actors would would have tried to play as straight, mm. and then you match him up against Stephen Root as the Jim Jones slash Elron Hubbard style cult leader, as well as reunite him with uh, Robert Aramayo from the Sand Up at Sparrow Creek, uh, and it further unsettles the already shaky ground his character is on. And as I've said this before, but the film rewards the thought and effort you put into it. And it's something I think I'll keep revisiting in the years to come, which is always the mark of like a, a true classic in my eyes. Yeah, uh, I want to talk about another movie that then we've covered on the pod already. Another Round. If you, for people who don't know, Danish film starring Mads Mikkelsen. Uh, he plays one of a group of unhappy middle-aged male friends who decide to consume alcohol daily to see how it affects their social and professional lives. And I feel that there's not much more I can say about Another Round that we... Then what we said in our extensive Mads ep, which oh, was... Oh, great. This will be a short one. The longest <laughs> ep we ever recorded. Yeah, nearly 90 minutes <laughs> Where, as far as I remember. But I'll just reiterate. Another end has such a good elevator pitch-like premise and yet handles it in a very mature way where it doesn't demonize alcohol but basically says like you know alcohol is a great thing in moderation but if you want to drink every second of every day it might be part of a larger problem with your life which I think is yeah fair truthful. fair assessment yeah and uh, I love how that point is not just made through how the story unfolds but also through its filmmaking you know its director Thomas Vinterberg adopting the sort of strip back almost like Dogma 95 S style as it depicts the characters kind of going through their daily mundane lives or suffering with the consequences of their drinking but like it's suddenly a lot more overtly stylish true kind of montage and music when its characters are indulging yeah you know like that scene where they're um they try those the the cocktails with like the balls of ice and yeah, then they go yeah. they go out and like he's like naked playing the piano <laughs> in the bar 
And, you know, while the movie does have a lot of, like, powerful, tragic moments, like the restaurant scene early on where Mads Martin has a quiet breakdown Mm. at a restaurant dinner with all his friends, like a celebration. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, the arc of the character Tommy. And speaking of that, I was out one day with Saul recently and he was like, oh, I watched another round again. Poor Specs, am I right? Do you remember the kid? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, I forgot about Specs. <laughs> I think it also might just be very funny with the humor and sadness somehow, you know, never clashing mm. in tone. And I think ultimately another round becomes the story that's less about alcohol and more about being reminded of life's pleasures, of which alcohol is only one. Like there's friendship, family, food, food, a career if you're passionate about it. And the fact that the movie can be about all those things and never feel didactic or like a lecture is some feat. And along with another film you're going to be talking about, it's just a great reminder of Mads Mikkelsen's versatility of an actor who, I know, starts the film embodying the most average Joe, sad yeah. guy to transforming into the most charismatic man who ever yeah. lived by the movie's <laughs> end. And I think in a year where there were a lot of good movies where for me, you know, the craft and performances were so strong and the story was so good on paper, but for whatever reason, the movie never transcended to a point where I was emotionally... Where I was so emotionally invested, I forgot I was watching a movie and, you know, had like a physical reaction yeah. to it, which is a thing I kind of crave when I go to cinema. It's what I got when I saw Parasite or Portrait of a Lady on Fire or Uncut Gems. Another round's final scene, like the big dance number, is probably as close as I felt to that this year. Like, I, I think that climax is, yeah. is so transcendent. Yeah. Another, I was thinking about like themes of this year. So when I pick my movies, I'm going to like link it to another one. I thought an interesting double bill they could do with another round is this other movie which was about with a theme of about being reawakened to life that also mixes kind of darkness and comedy re-effectively was palm springs oh yeah yeah that's good yeah i saw, actually saw that this year as well yeah, yeah. i thought it was really good it's i forgot, re- actually completely forgot about that it's yeah a fun comedy yeah, yeah and uh i think whereas martin in another round is stuck in a sort of metaphorical root the characters in palm springs played by christian miotti and andy sandberg are stuck in literal purgatory mm. like being forced to relive the same day over and over again in a sort of Groundhog Day time loop sort of situation and again um, with that movie loved its tonal balance loved its vibe flawless performances too especially a scene stealing J.K. Simmons oh, so good yeah. <laughs> the bit where he's like look my kid over there he's so happy and you see the kid and he's like watering like a piece of shit <laughs> <laughs> amazing you just kill me one more time for all time's sake sure shoots him in an arrow in yeah, a bin in a yeah. bin yeah <laughs> um, yeah great film movie Four. Uh, what's next in your list? Well, let's uh, take the tone back down to uh, more nihilism, more nihilistic horror. I don't know what it was about this year, but three of my top five are horror movies. And I two, uh, my two minor horrors. Oh, Grant, <laughs> I'm right there with you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're on the same level almost. Uh, so num- my number four is uh, the Medium, which is a Thai found footage film written and produced by Nahong Jin, who is the director and writer of the epic South Korean nightmare, The Wailing. From 2016. Uh, the movie's about Mink. He was played by Narilia Gulmong Kolpek. Names are all Thai, so excuse my pronunciation. I don't know if we have any Thai listeners, but uh, you'll have to forgive me. Uh, and Mink is the niece of Thai medium Nim, who's played by Sawani Utuma. You know, Mink is possessed by the vengeful, vengeful spirits of a massacre committed by her dece- recently deceased father's ancestors. Which is all to say it's a nasty piece of work with a mean streak a mile long. So it's the medium is a possession film that, much like The Exorcist, leaves us with the barest impression of who the possessed person was before they were possessed. Although in this case, it's a young woman, young woman rather than a barely teenaged girl. So while it's less shocking uh, seeing Mink engage in the kind of things Reagan did in The Exorcist, like the 
you know, slapping her mother at the crucifix masturbation or whatever. That doesn't happen in this film, but similar things do. It's still nasty seeing her get fired from her job after the spirit of a prostitute basically puts Nim's body to work um, in by using her office as like the prostitute spirit's office, if you get me. And like there's some real gross stuff where she like forces her uncle to do some stuff to her and he's very resistant in fairness to him uh, thank god yeah. Um, Jesus yeah and it's like a faux documentary that like quite quickly it's a, a, initially it's about the medium uh, name and just like Thai culture and spirituality and the mythology and religion uh, but then that quickly morphs into a religious mystery about uh, like oh is um, is Mink like the is she being possessed by the goddess that possessed um, Nim uh, when she was a teenager and it's them figuring out that's oh no it's not oh but maybe it's uh her brother who she was in an incestuous relationship with which is already pretty fucked up <laughs> and that's only in the first hour and then it's like and then it makes itself known as this really nihilistic hopeless horror film and yeah it's a mean-spirited film for sure but unlike halloween kills it doesn't leave a bad taste in your mouth like, it's emotionally effective because none of the characters really deserve what's happening to them. The mistakes they make are forgivable after you see the punishment meted out on them by the vengeful spirits. These characters of the medium are seeking to right or wrong, whereas the spirits seek vengeance not only on the living they presume to be guilty, but on the innocents tangentially connected to them. So, like, the documentary crew or um, Mink's friends or Nim's friends. And the mistakes the, char- the mistake the characters and the script, if we're being honest, making Halloween kills are pretty unforgivable from an audience standpoint, so it's hard to care when they're all massacred at the end. Prove me wrong. Prove me wrong, Stephen. <laughs> Just, uh, I don't know. If I have to defend Halloween Kills, yeah, if you have, to, de- if you have I, to defend a I think mentally like... ill man being forced to commit suicide, <laughs> yeah, try. Go ahead. <laughs> Even when it's bad. I love in horror movies where it's like, aren't humans the real monsters? That's the thing I always dig. I don't know. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. yeah. And um, I like, I just, I, I don't know. As much as kind of well, Halloween Kills in some parts did leave a bad taste in my mouth, I kind of like how hard it went. Like, I liked how it was pretty gnarly, you know. It's pretty gnarly in terms of the gore, and I don't yeah. mind a mean streak in movies as as this evidences, but I think in Halloween Kills, it's like, all right, this seems... Excessive. Needless <laughs> and excessive. Yeah. Needlessly excessive, Fair. even. Yeah. Anyway. Um, but the medium sounds great. It sounds like something I would totally watch over Christmas as a break from all the merriment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's so. uh, it's not. It's uh, streaming on Shudder. It's yeah. two. Uh, it's like two hours of ten yeah. minutes. Shudder well. had a good year as well. Shudder did have a good year. Yeah, yeah. VHS ninety four. I really Solid that. one. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's a uh, so Thailand like South Korea or Japan or Indonesia. Also has a really rich spiritual and mythological history that gives horror filmmakers a lot to work with, and also shares similar themes, motifs, and visuals across borders. And it's not necessarily a new kind of horror film, but it is a new perspective on old tropes, much like The Wailing or something like that, that uh, I found really good and entertaining. And I think uh, if you have Shudder or uh, if you're not willing to pay for Shudder, you can get a seven, I think you get seven, seven day free trial and uh, you can check it out along with uh, VHS 94 and yeah. The House of the Devil. Another, that's another great one. Yeah, and I, they just added, I think, Prisoners of the Ghostland, the new Nicolas Cage movie. Yeah, and which, uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night 2. <laughs> Yeah, I want to have another horror movie. Old. Yeah, yeah, um, I haven't seen it. Um, yes. I, I kept hearing mixed things, to be honest. So it's, uh, I'm going to sell you on it. I'm going to say on it hard. Go for it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so for those who don't know the premise, uh, a vacationing family discovers that the gorgeous secluded beach uh, where they're relaxing for a few hours on holiday is somehow causing them to age rapidly, reducing their entire lives into a single day. They're unable to leave. This, for me, is M.I. Shaman's best movie since The Sixth Sense. 
I think it really shows him at the peak of his powers as a director and a screenwriter. And I, I think a really good blend of like filmmaking prowess, themes and entertainment. Because Old is a crazy movie. Once the characters get to the beach, it's a Boonwell film. It's like Darren Aronofsky's mother. It's just escalating surrealness. And you can tell Shyamalan, uh, Shyamalan is just having a ball, contrasting the, the stunning setting with his like disorientating camera work and this constantly kind of off-kilter framing to create a real sense of unease as he just puts all his characters through the ringer with these audacious, insane set pieces all linked around this phone-deep universal fear of aging. Mm. And, you know, this movie was slagged off on the internet when the trailer came out and when it was released, probably because it's such a blunt title. Yeah, <laughs> old. yeah. It's a bit of beach that makes you old. You know, life's a beach. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he hits the metaphor in so many sharp ways, whether it's, there's the, overtly horror movie stuff like Vicky Krebs's character has a tumor which the beach makes grow rapidly and it goes into like the size of a football in her stomach and the only person there capable of removing it is Rufus Sewell's surgeon but he is schizophrenia which the beach is also making worse so there's a scene where he's operating on Krebs's character and just stops and smiles and is like what was that film that starred Marlon Brando and Jack Nicholson and everyone's like what are you doing (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that's before he takes out a knife and starts threatening the other holidayers I also um, in the movie Rufus Sewell is married to this glamorous younger woman played by Abby Lee who we get the impression of at the beginning of the movie is a little vain mm. but you know, we learn that she suffers from an illness where she has um, low calcium levels in her body and soon on the beach her bones just begin to just crack and disintegrate Ugh. and she can't bear anyone seeing her looking like that so she goes into a cave to hide and then later in the movie the now teenage version of the kids at the beginning played by Alex Wolf and Thomas McKenzie, they're trying to find a way to escape the beach and they go into a cave and they find her and her body is all mangled and she's screaming like, don't look at me! Turn Easy. off the light! And there's so much more insane stuff like that that I won't spoil, but essentially from the moment we get to the beach, it's just pure unrelenting nightmare feel that is somehow n- never really gratuitous because I do think this movie is grappling with the theme of aging in a thoughtful way as opposed to just using it as a shortcut for shots because um the blank check podcast had done a whole series on Shyamalan and they covered old and i thought they summed up the movie very, very eloquently so i want to credit them but like through the kid characters the movie explores the sadness of watching your parents bodies and minds start to fail but then through the Gail Garcia Bernal and Vicky Creep's parent characters, it captures the strange feeling of watching your kids change and grow mm, over the years. Yeah. While through all the other characters, because there's multiple families on the beach, it's capturing just the fact that like no one in life gets out alive. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I think amongst the horror, Shyamalan finds moments of real beauty. Because at the beginning of the movie, like Krebs and Bernal are planning to get a divorce and the trip was the way of um you know, trying to avoid upsetting the children, like giving them kind of nice memory. Yeah. Uh, but there's this part towards the end where the pair of age rapidly and are beginning to lose their memories, like they're suffering with dementia. And Bernal says to Creeps, like, were we fighting? Well, whatever it was, I'm not mad anymore. I can't remember. <laughs> Why do we want to leave this beach? It's so beautiful. Wow. And with such love in his eyes, he turns to her and says, it's funny, I forget the word. My feelings for you. And it's really, really like makes you cry in the yeah. middle of this batshit movie. <laughs> and for such a you know gnarly, bleak horror movie, it's one of the most beautiful moments i've seen in a film this year and i also think the genius thing about shaman is that you know i'm explaining this movie and like listeners who you know might not have seen it it might sound like i'm describing some sort of obscure art house movie but shaman's smart enough to know that if i'm going to release this in multiplexes it can't just be boonwell stuff there needs to be resolution there kind of needs to be a mystery there needs to be something that 
people going out for you know a good time on a date you know can latch on to to make the ser- surrealist stuff go down a little easier unlike say mother that you know the darren aronofsky yeah. movie where casual cinema goers were just furious <laughs> at the end like it got like an f cinema score or whatever and indeed the movie does have this extended third act where you learn all about what's happening on the beach who's behind it and while that stuff does feel a little bolted on like it's from a bit of a, a more conventional like thriller horror sci-fi i still quite enjoyed it because the explanation behind the beach is creepy in a different more twilight zoney or it's almost a bit more like what's the thing in futurama tales of interest <laughs> kind of way and um he was probably right to include it unlike mother which kind of just threw it all out there and was like i don't know yeah um because old made five times its budget despite a pandemic yeah you know so just the fact that he could smuggle in it's insane how much he knocks it out of the park, like money-wise. Yeah, it's true. Especially since he's um, he's kind of gone back to his roots and uh-huh. is like not working. It seems like he's putting up his own money for the movies, uh-huh. and he's making like I think he's writing the way like this is how much I, money I can like put into this movie, and um, every time it just like it covers his investment. You yeah, know? it's just very smart business. And uh, also, N.Y. Shyamalan's cameo in old as man who drives the cast to the set of the movie on the beach and then literally films them probably my favorite director cameo ever <laughs> it's just like it's such a meta thing of it like mm. that's like what filmmaking is um mm. yeah it's a big fan and then just um as a comparison point to old and we were talking about shutter how it's had a really good year the amusement park is a it would be a good companion piece to old in that it's a surreal horror movie about aging it's a, the new movie from george a. romero who the creator of the night of the living dead franchise and you may be thinking didn't romero pass away in 2017 yes he did however the amusement he's back from the dead <laughs> this uh, this was a movie he made in the 70s but was then shelved and has only been released on shutter and yeah i just want to talk a little bit about this because it's such a weird background to it this film was commissioned by the lutheran service society of western pennsylvania as an educational film about elder abuse and ageism and according to romero's wife they did use it originally but it's suspected that the movie romero made was a little edgier yeah than what they would have liked probably because um they got the man who made night of the living dead to make it um, and was put on a shelf and it was considered lost until 2017 when a 16 millimeter print was discovered it's like a psa that begins with this actor uh played by lincoln melizel who was in romero's film martin explaining that old people can face a lot of problems you know loneliness failing health inadequate transportation medical care lack of money and just a general lack of compassion and support from younger people and he basically says like the amusement park which you are about to visit illustrates some of the many problems people of my age face on a daily basis we intend for you to feel the problem to experience it cut to the story of this old man uh, the same played by the same actor in a nice white suit excited to spend a day in an amusement park however pretty quickly things take a sinister surreal turn and over the course of the day he's berated robbed attacked and ignored by the younger people in the amusement park by the end of the film he's left bloody and disheveled his pristine suit ruined um, just a great reminder of what a genius Romero was with him taking you know what could have been a simple work for hire gig and turning into something that was not only profoundly affecting in what it was set out to do like showcasing the plight old people can face but also just very artistically rich yeah it has this like evocative metaphorical setting and situations and the nightmarish way romero captures it on screen like a lot of like old disorientating camera very jarring sound mix that makes you feel like you're kind of trapped like it's like a nightmare and um it's a tough watch Though it's only 53 minutes, so it's a quick one. And uh, I think, yeah, I think it's well worth seeking out. So the amusement well, You've part. definitely sold me on old. Yeah. Not so much on a granddad being bullied. <laughs> <laughs> Fair, you know. As you heard in the intro, this show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest network of independent podcasts. There's plenty of other great shows to check out on the network. Here's a taster of one. Tell me, are you still looking for something worth dying for? Oh, kid. 
I left all that behind me. These days, I'm much happier as the humble owner of this down-to-earth and incredibly exclusive nightclub. Mick turns his head away and stares pensively. Dancing hot sex man, adventure romance. He will kick several Nazis and get in your pants. Blackbird! Listen to the Bootsy Boys Blackbird on the Headstuff Podcast Network. I Know That Face are also delighted to finally get to tell listeners about Headstuff Plus. Headstuff Plus is the one-stop shop for everything on the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest podcast network and the one to which I Know That Face belongs. If you're a fan of I Know That Face or any other shows on the network, become a member of Headstuff Plus and get bonus episodes of Headstuff Shows, other exclusive content, merchandise, early access to live events and lots more. We here at I Know That Face have already recorded a handful of bonus episodes where myself and Andrew talk about more current news and releases in the world of film and TV. But also in the future, we have plans for more actor-themed series as well, along with releasing episode outtakes, accompanying articles, etc. All for Headstuff Plus subscribers. To sign up to Headstuff Plus, it's just €5 plus fat per month. When you sign up, no matter what show or shows you are supporting, you still get access to everything. All the bonus material for all the podcasts on the network. A lot of great podcasts. Plus, by doing so, you'll be supporting I Know The Face to bring you more top material. For all the details and to sign up, visit headstuffpodcasts.com. And now, back to the show. Movie 3. Time to get Danish again. Yes, that's with, true. Uh, Riders of Justice. Soldier Marcus, played by Never Better ba- Mads Mikkelsen, he's had a great year this year. He certainly did. Uh, is called home after his wife is killed in a train accident. Unable to deal with his grief or be there for his devastated daughter, Matilda, he instead chooses to believe three statisticians, Otto, Nikolai Lee Cass, Lennart, Lars Brigman, and Emmett Taylor, played by Nicholas Bro, who think the accident was an assassination attempt on a man due to testify against the biker gang, Riders of Justice. So as I said, the second of two insanely good Mads Mikkelsen-fronted films released this year. But I think this one has more variety and just as much pathos as another round does. True, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you can't argue with it. And it's essentially a found fam- family dramedy with elements of a revenge thriller and the character d- depth of My Dinner with Andre. Uh, a few other films like give as much depth and breathing room to their comic relief as Riders of Justice does. And few other films also reveal how little chance and fate mean to the average human life. Um, and it's rare for a film to make such a drastic turn on its themes as Riders of Justice does in the third act and reveal that its revenge-seeking heroes were maybe completely wrong in the first place, <laughs> yeah. um, perhaps. And it's a nihilistic spin on the theme of chance and fate, which is pretty rarely seen considering how often those themes and the likes of Magnolia are used for a relatively happy ending. That said, there's also No Country for Old Men, which is even more nihilistic, so it's two sides of the same coin, I guess. Yeah. It kind of treads the needle, doesn't it, Riders of Justice, where it is very happy. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. But it is yeah. very dark, too. Yeah, because it, it has the like fairy tale uh, yeah. beginning and ending. Yeah, and it could be a Danish version of John Wick or something similar, but it sacrifices the potential for hard-hitting action in certain spots. It still has it uh, in others. For some really funny character work, as well as like real dramatic heft. If it was just Mads, it would be a very different film. But its team of like three nerdy statisticians make the movie into a bizarre, more lovable animal altogether. And like, I challenge you to find a film that essentially creates a family group out of three traumatized nerds, a closed off soldier, his daughter, her emotionally open boyfriend and a rescued Ukrainian male prostitute. (laughs) And it's a rewarding watch because although we're invested in Mads' character's journey from like raging against the world that's trying to break him until finally accepting that he's already broken and needs help. Uh, we're also invested in every other character and the way they deal with their emotional problems and the way they interact with each other. So, like, the three nerds have, like, obviously been through been, been through it, really. And, uh, yeah. like, there's a part where um, 
Marcus gets angry with Mads Mikkelsen's character Marcus gets angry with Lennart and uh, Lennart like jumps out of the car and like bends down in front of him as if he's you know about to be assaulted and uh, Marcus is like Jesus Christ and just sort of backs up slowly and then it's revealed that uh, you know trigger warning I guess that um, Lennart was sexually assaulted in a barn which led to an obsession with barns later in life he's, he's constantly like oh can we have the meeting in the barn because Marcus has a barn <laughs> And it's just, it's, it's just very strange and not a choice you would see in many other movies. I won't even say like many Hollywood movies, many movies, period. <laughs> General, yes. Yeah. And it's, it's probably, it has like probably the best ensemble of 2021. Yeah. And, and just to cap it all off, it ends with a very stern looking Mads Mikkelsen in a Christmas jumper. Yeah, 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 absolutely. The thing I couldn't get over when I came out of that movie was just like, what came first? Was it all the chance stuff or was it the vengeance movie? Like, who thinks I'm going to put them two together? Yeah. And it actually, like, works. They're a dish that shouldn't go together. But absolutely it does. not, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I loved Riders of Justice, mm. absolutely. Can we talk about Malignant? Let's go for it. Yeah. Do you want to do the plot there? I, I, do, I figured yeah. I'd let you go off because I know that you it was your shit. So Madison, played by Annabelle Wallace, is a pregnant nurse in an abusive relationship. One day, when her husband goes too far, it results in her losing the baby and in his death at the hands of a mysterious attacker. Soon after, Madison begins having visions of the same murderer, who she later names Gabriel, killing others, all of whom may have connections to Madison. Detectives Kakoa Shaw, played by George Young, and Regina Moss, Nicole Brianna White, however, suspect Madison herself. And yeah, maybe the mo- it's maybe the most entertaining, if not necessarily the best horror movie yeah. of this young decade so far. Uh, it's a horror, horror movie that's in on the joke and doesn't really care if its audience is or not. Um, I mean, if you are in on the joke with it, then it's, frankly, a far more entertaining watch. It's like it's got this rain-soaked Seattle setting. There's loads of gothic houses. There's an insane asylum. Um, if you're not on the wavelength of the movie the minute you see the insane asylum at the beginning, I, I, I don't know You what. should get up and leave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and it's got actors leaning so hard into, their tr- into the tropes of their characters that they just fall out the other side. There's loads of giallo lighting and a score that sounds like Cliff Martinez is trying to create early Goblin after a meth binge. Um... <laughs> And like uh, one of the criticisms a lot of people had about this movie is that the first act is kind of a slump. Yeah. You know, just after after Madison gets knocked out by her husband and he's killed, um, it kind of like dips a little because she's recovering and uh, there's an investigation going on. And then, you know, it starts picking up again with the with more murders after that by the same perpetrator. Um, But if you keep that opening in mind, which is like giallo red and... And and that for and Madison's husband's death in your head, you know that James Wan is at least going to try pulling the rug out from under you later on in the film. If not, even if this like very weirdly, I don't know. I can't really how it seems like it's washed out the lighting, but it also seems like very focused as well. Yeah, it's hard it's to describe. True. I know what you mean. Yeah, it's a bit hazy or something. Yeah, like yeah. It's like I suppose it's like a Seattle's a city where it's constantly raining. So yeah, I guess that maybe that's why. And like once you get to the first big twist, which is pretty emblematic of both the visual and performance style the film is going for, you know you're in for an insane ride. Like the I'm adopted line. And then the And Maddie Hassan, who plays her sister Sydney Eyes, just like eclipse her face. Um and like Annabelle Wallace acts like she's in the next Exorcist, whereas everyone else, specifically like Maddie Hassan as Sydney and Ingrid Basu, who's married to James Wan as Winnie, 
act like they're in a Lifetime movie by way of Mario Bava. Which one is she in? Is she the cop who sort of has a She's crush? in love with yeah, uh, yeah. Kakoa Shaw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's great in it. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's so funny. Yeah. All those little bits. Yeah. Uh, I kind of wish there was actually more of her. Yeah. And then once the fire escape parkour chase happens, oh, you know, you're yeah. in the hands of someone who's aware of just how insane this film is. Like the just the bit where he's like flipping feet to hands to hands to feet down the fire escape and uh, George Young leans out the window and is like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, as like the AV clubs, Alex Dowd said, the best rides take make some unexpected turns on the way to the next drop. And aside from being one of the best horror films of 2021, it's also one of the best action movies and comedies in a year that didn't really have a lot of either. It goes to show that in a year where where a lot of other genres were really struggling to get, kind of get back on the feet or were still on their floor, on the floor even, horror really stepped up to fill the empty slots. And I think the same goes for 2020 as well, I think. Because there was a lot of horror movies that were like, just by virtue of the drive-in theatres in America alone, became massive box office successes. And uh, I think it's been a strange couple of years... Uh, or a strange 18 months maybe for every genre except horror and superhero films considering how locked into a formula a lot of them are but I think Malignant shows a way forward for horror movies yeah true and my love for Malignant is hard to put into words critically because I I know it's flawed I know it has silly elements I know it might even have some plot holes and yet I don't care because there was no movie I saw in 2021 that gave me so much joy is seeing Malignant in the cinema the day it came out mm. not knowing anything about it except that it was by James Wan who made Saw and Insidious and that it was a horror movie that hadn't been screened for critics and then being brought on this wild journey and but thinking about After the Fact I think Malignant is a real example of a director elevating material because, and and I don't think that, that's not, material he wrote himself I don't think he did I think he wrote a, it with his wife I think Kayla Cooper I thought had the screen credit oh did he huh. yeah. maybe it was a story by then maybe I'm not yeah. sure but anyway whatever you know, I'm not dissing on the screenplay which has loads of element, horror elements I really like and funny lines and tackles I think some whitey thematic stuff like women being under the thumb mm. of controlling men yeah. but the story is very convoluted and not the most elegant in its construction in that like everything plot wise is built around this admittedly jaw dropping twist yeah. <laughs> but um, so would say floor dropping <laughs> <laughs> and yeah that's another scene if you're if you're not in on the movie then just just yeah, exit yeah, the yeah. cinema but i just think Yuan has such a great handle on what story this is which is i, don't, I think is essentially like it can't be throwback to dario argento giallo's like deep red or tenenbrae with a little bit of like david cronenberg who body horror yeah. pseudoscience thrown in for good measure and i i think he p- kind of pulls a magic trick here in that like he not only like papers over the screenplays cracks you know its flaws he kind of turns them into strengths by leaning into its heightened story and through his filmmaking and yeah as i mentioned like just throughout the movie whether it's that opening in that like insanely gothic looking psychiatric hospital situated on the edge of a mountain cliff or and, and i think that's like the doctor like looks down the barrel of the lens and is like it's time to cut out the cancer <laughs> or, those strange overhead shots of madison's house where you're seeing like it's almost like you're seeing the set or like the yeah. architecture laid out or the movie's like, yeah, constant fluorescent yellow lighting, the, you know, the Sydney I'm adopted scene. I think all of that is just Wan like priming audiences ahead of that big twist saying like, isn't this ludicrous? Isn't this so much yeah. fun? So when that utterly banana twist comes, like you're just like punching the yeah. air. And um, I also think Malignant is Wan even flexing a bit of what he's learned working outside of horror because like he's made other things like, you know, that pretty solid uh revenge film with kevin, kevin bacon, bacon death sentence yeah. uh which aquaman aquaman obviously and fast and furious 7 mm. and you know as you mentioned yeah on top of being like a pretty enjoyably freaky horror movie movement is sort of the best comedy movie of the year <laughs> sort of the best action movie that line where 
Sydney was it Sydney the main character. Sydney is, is the, the sister. sister. Uh, Maddie. Maddie draws a picture of Gabriel for the cops, and one of the cops is like, "I'll put out a bolo out on Sloth from the Goonies." <laughs> <laughs> so I'm putting out a bolo on Sloth from the Goonies. Yeah. yeah, yeah, great bit. That bit where like the cop chases Gabriel down the balcony, and then into like I think it's underground or mm. into like an abandoned building. Like that seems odd. And then just the the climactic police station scene yeah. is like unbelievable <laughs> like, <laughs> like it's better than like john wick yeah, or something yeah. like it, it's insane i just can't wait to watch this every year till i die yeah <laughs> and um good year for J- jallo throwbacks too because uh, i think if you want to watch another movie where a young woman is haunted by visions of people being killed with tons of twists mm-hmm. uh why not check out edgar wright's last night in soho which features two great performances by annie taylor joy and thomas mckenzie who's also an old it also features a gorgeous recreation of london in the 60s and as typical with edgar wright a, a really great soundtrack Movie two. Yeah, Malignant was Stephen's number three and my number two. And because we've just talked about it, uh, what's your number two, Stephen? Petit Maman. Mm. This movie centers on a young girl, Nelly, in the aftermath of her grandmother's passing. Uh, with her parents, she goes to stay in her mother's childhood home so that the trio can soar through the belongings uh, her grandmother left behind. However, early into the stay, Nelly's mom decides she needs some um, alone time to process the loss and just takes off in the middle of the night, leaving Nelly with her father. And kind of confused by her mom's abrupt departure, she distracts herself by exploring um, the houses surrounding woods. Uh, quickly, Nelly makes friends with another young girl named Marion. And uh, however, upon accepting an invitation to Marion's house to hang out, Nelly comes to realize that her new friend is actually her mother as a child, the little mom of the title. Oh, wow. Did you not know that was what it was about? I don't speak French, so no. Petit <laughs> moment. Yeah, this is the latest from ride director Celine Sciamma, who made your favorite movie last year, Portrait mm-hmm. of Lady on Fire. And just on the base of Portrait and Petit Maman, I just think there's no one better at capturing seemingly minute intimate moments with such honesty and precision I mean there was that line in Portrait that destroyed us like do all lovers feel like they're inventing something which just captured so well what it's like to fall in love for the first time and I think quietly powerful lines and moments like that are all over Petit Mama except this time the movie is focusing in on childhood anxieties and child and parent relationships and um, yeah it's kind of a rare movie in that it's completely devoid of artificial tension and almost completely devoid of tension in general i think it's narrative feels more like an act of wish fulfillment because if you think of it what's so sad about life is that age and that (laughs) that it ends and when you go to the beach it makes you old no um is the age gulf between children and parents that separates them because young children can never really know what their parents were like at their age they will only understand why their guardians are the way they are when they become that age. Yeah, yeah. But by that point, the parents will have moved into a new stage of your life or may have tragically died, you know? And what's beautiful about Petit Mama, which is all shot in these gorgeous woodlands with Shiama turning what probably was the limitations of making a movie during the pandemic into an advantage. It, it's like, kind of like this fairy tale in which a daughter gets to meet like a happier, purer version of her mother, unencumbered by like the weight of the world. And, you know, she gets to see how similar she is to her mom and they can talk about things in a way that they perhaps could not with that gulf of age and... Yeah, just speaking of Sham's ability to make viewers weep with emotion with just a simple interaction, there's a moment in Petit Mama when Nelly tells young Marion that she will give birth to her daughter in her early 20s. And Nelly and Marion says, like, I'm not surprised. I'm already thinking of you. <laughs> and, and it just gives Nelly the reassurance she needed that her mom loves her, even though she left, mm. you know, at the beginning of the movie. Um, such a gorgeous scene that's so well played by um, the real life twins who 
play Marion and Ellie, uh, Gabriel and Josephine Sands, who are adorable and innocent, but never cloying like they're trying too hard. And they also have an odd adult quality to them, which works for the premise of the movie, obviously. And um, this is a great bit in the movie where they're acting out a murder mystery together. One of them wants to be like an actress, and I think Nelly. And um, it's so entertaining. I could have watched a whole move, whole other hour of them just goofing around, mm. which is not something I would often say about kid characters in movies. So it's just a testament to Shyama's skill at that. And she's made a lot of movies with young protagonists. Yeah, and as I said, like can't get over Shyama's ability for capturing just simple, beautiful moments on screen. Another bit is when um, Nelly and the older incarnation of Marion um, leave the hospital after the grandmother's death and just sensing how upset her mother is like the young girl reaches over from the back seat to feed her driving mother crisps and juice before hugging her in an effort <laughs> to make her feel better I don't know like I think that's like a moment that's so s- simplistic but is something that like any person can relate to you know that feeling of being like a kid and you seeing a parent upset and wanting to cheer them up but also like not knowing how yeah and mm. like not being kind of mature enough to kind yeah, of realize why yeah. they're upset you're like oh no don't cry yeah you yeah, know yeah. it's just those you know little true to life details that make this very similar movie which is it's only 72 minutes long feel more substantial than most movies twice its length and then also just um i went at the irish film institute recently for the french film festival mm. that they do every year um Shyama has co-wrote a movie that jack odr directed called paris 13th district it's not out yet in ireland um it's not retelling so it's not technically a 2021 movie it's coming out in 2022 i think in march but um yeah it's a black and white movie set in a certain district of paris and follows multiple characters they're all connected but it's sort of like a look at ennui and kind of feelings of isolation in like an increasingly digital world um again if you like Celine Chiamma movies sort of a similar kind of humanist touch mm. in this movie um I really enjoyed it and uh Naomi Merlon from Portrait of a Lady on Fire is in it and uh, Jenny Woo! Beth the singer from Savages so very cool movie would recommend people check it out as well movie one right my number one of the year Spencer okay yeah Diana, Princess of Wales, played by Kristen Stewart, is due to spend Christmas at the Queen's Sandringham estate. Her marriage to Prince Charles, played by a ghoulish Jack Farthing, is crumbling. Her relationship with her in-laws is on equally shaky ground. Her barely controlled bulimia and the ravenous tabloid attention is starting to get to her too. Will she break or stand firm for the sake of her sons over the next three days? That's the main question of the movie. So this is essentially a psychological costume drama with shades of like The Shining and Dracula specifically in any scene that Prince Charles is in uh, and the Silence of the Lambs in that it's kind of like some parts of it have like a Jonathan Demme style characters addressing the camera directly which is really good especially in that uh, walk-in fridge scene that's also reminiscent of The Shining where Yes, Chris Stewart is talking to Timothy Spall, and it's crazy. It's got real. I've always been the caretaker. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you've always been the Princess of Wales. <laughs> <laughs> and Princess Diana is a pretty unreliable protagonist. I won't say narrator, narrator, because she doesn't really narrate the movie. Um, in that much of the film's drama comes from comes from what she does or doesn't see. And the film is full of hallucinations. Like there's a scene where she like eats a pearl at dinner, and uh, in addition to that, the Johnny Greenwood score is playing, and it's this insane like. No, 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 strings and then it cuts to the string quartet that are actually playing and they're all there like (laughs) (laughs) Uh, which I thought was really funny and there's like there's loads of moments that Diana just catches out of the corner of her eye like when she's being photographed by this wall of like photographer tabloid photographers that look like some kind of Lovecraftian monster she catches sight of uh um Prince Charles looking at Camilla who isn't who's barely in the film she's in that one two second scene and then the way Kristen Stewart holds herself completely changes 
And like it's the the main picture people use, I think, where it's she's got the little veil over her face. It's just after Christmas Day mask, and she just sort of, it's like watching a woman kind of implode. She realize it's kind of like a realization that everything that she kind of tried to build with this man has just is just gone, destroyed, and the only thing worth the only thing worth saving out of it are her two sons. Um, very very emotional moment uh, conveyed in like maybe a split second of like a gesture. Not even a shoulder shrug, more of a shoulder dip, um, and it's a kind of like all the nearly every single dialogue scene is just like groaning under the weight of different metaphors. Like there's a point Diana's compared to like wild a wild horse or um, Queen uh, the decapitated Queen Anne Boleyn, which who she also sees uh, visions of, uh, and there's a great little one scene bit where she talks to the Queen and uh, the Queen is like the only photo that ever matters that's taken of you is the one that they print on the £10 note <laughs> uh, it's a gorgeous looking film as well with more than its fair share of like kind of camp comedy with the car full of corgis that pulls up behind the Queen's Rolls Royce uh, Sean Harry's military kitchen prep like the, the just the opening of the movie where it's just these soldiers carrying in boxes and boxes labelled with uh, 50 calibre machine gun uh, ammunition and then they put it down and it's opened and it's revealed just to be full of fruits and vegetables and meat for the Christmas Day celebrations. And uh, Sean Harry's just go, troops, once more onto the breach. <laughs> um, like there's a great trailer line where it's that's obviously it was obviously used for like baiting people, I, I guess, where um, Sean Harry's finds her after she's gotten lost and she sees the scarecrow out in the field. And she, he's like, you're, you're late. Your Majesty, and she's like, "Well, they kill me, do you think?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And there's a there's a little interview on the Graham Norton show, not with Kristen Stewart, but with Emma Corrin, who plays Princess Diana on The Crown. And he was asking uh, her and Josh O'Connell what things they do to get into character. So, uh, like, to, to really quickly get into character, and Josh O'Connell would say that Prince Charles would always check his cufflinks in his pocket square mm. and after he, the second he got out of a car and then wave to everyone whereas Emma Corrin was like it was getting into the voice that helped her so and that everything Diana said just dipped you know it was like she could be having the best time ever and it would all just fall down like she'd go home and cry <laughs> and uh, like there's a scene there's just a scene that really sold me on the whole on Kristen Stewart's performances towards the end where um, she's like you kind of realise that like Diana was like a woman born into great privilege and uh, wealth and status but didn't necessarily want the more negative aspects that came with it who does Um, and there's a bit where she's like I'm actually quite normal I like things that are ordinary things that are real I like Phantom of the Opera I'm fond of Les I love fast food (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and uh, like Stuart is the film's son and it's supporting ca- but it's supporting sh- cast shine brightly too especially like Tim- Timothy Spall as I mentioned earlier as Major Alistair Gregory whose kind of ambiguous nature feeds into the whole nightmarish paranoia the film really builds towards and then just dispels utterly by playing Mike and the Mechanics and wait, I think all I need is a miracle yeah yeah so it's a great scene and um I think it's a film. Uh, it's a film full of background impressions, so that they hired they hired a lot of people that looked like they, they had hired people who didn't have speaking roles, like play Prince Philip or um, Camilla, and obviously her sons and the Queen. Queen does have a speaking role, but uh, other people that 
they doesn't utilize the royal family as much as he was expect is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. But they all look quite like the royal family, which only serves to heighten how good Kristen Stewart is as Diana in that it's but it's kind of off kilter as well because they don't there's just something about them that distinguishes them from the real life royal family. Um so it's rather it's how Diana sees them rather than how they actually are. It's maybe. like it makes her seem more like an outsider. Yeah, know? exactly, yeah. yeah. And then you just add Johnny Greenwood's frazzled frightening score to that and you've got the perfect one, woman under the influence film that is also entirely its own beast yeah absolutely yeah. I really enjoyed um, Spencer I wasn't I don't know what it was about it maybe because it is kind of all background details that accumulate into um, just a bigger impression of kind of what it was like inside Diana's head mm. as royal family I don't know I did really enjoy it I think it's the fact that Pablo Lorraine wouldn't take a picture of you at the Venice Film Festival. I was actually going to say, um, maybe I'm a bit familiar with this thing that Pablo Lorraine does where he makes these biopics that are less beholden to real life, but is more kind of like trying to get more to closer to the essence of who this person is. Mm. I think Jackie's like that. I think um, Neruda is like that. So maybe I was, I'm, was a bit more used to it. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah, but I, but, I hadn't seen but, I, but I did think Spencer was kind of we were talking about great horror movies. There is something about it that's incredibly atmospheric, incredibly like ghostly yeah, about it, yeah. which um, I really Maybe it's the ghost she sees. She sees incredible um, score by John Greenwood. Really, I, ju- I love the opening credits. It was so like woozy and mm, jazzy. Yeah, I did really like it. Yeah, yeah. I think the the bit that made it seem like a real gothic kind of ghost story is where she's walking across the field between Sandringham, where the party is being held, and her old house, which is considered unsafe and she's forbidden to go there um and she's like in this beautiful like white christmas day gown uh and like the moon is lighting sandringham castle behind her and to make it look like dracula's castle as she heads towards this house which you know looks haunted yeah yeah you said spencer's your number one movie of the year my number one's pig I watched the trailer of it today um i never i don't know why i didn't see it in the cinema i don't know it just uh just another one that passed me by, I guess. Yeah, as I said, like this wasn't a movie year where I was like 100% wedded to my number one pick, but um, I decided to give it to Pig because I thought out of the five, it was the one that, to me, felt the most primal, the most unique, the most like, how did someone think of this? And I just remember coming out of the cinema and basically just looking for people to recommend it to. Mm. In the movie, Nicolas Cage plays a recluse who for reasons we learn over the course of the movie has turned his back on society and retreated to a shack in a forest where he makes a living truffle hunting with the help of his pet pig. However, one night, Cage's character is assaulted and his pig is stolen. He, along with his uh, one connection through the outside world, um, this young supplier um, named Amir, played by Alex Wolf, also an old, they head to, to the nearby city of Portland together, a city you know, very renowned for its cuisine to try and get the pig back. Yeah, I think what's genius about Pig is that it starts off as this new twist on a you know, take in John Wick type vengeance movie, which would already be cool. And like the movie does feature an underground fight club and a brooding <laughs> performance from Nicolas Cage that always seems on the edge of erupting into anger and violence. So there's enough for fans that want that. But very quickly it reveals itself to these like perfectly performed stage scenes which feel partly like interrogations, partly like free flowing conversations about life, to be this like deeply humane movie that examines the topic of grief with so much compassion but also existential ideas like you know the clash between work and family and the little compromises people make every day to their dreams and how that can accumulate until mm. you've wasted your life you know worrying about the wrong things and you might not think those things would go together but they do because of this sharp script by first time ride director uh, michael sarnowski but also because of the space sarnowski gives to cage 
in a movie with not a whole lot of violence, Pig hits harder than most Vengeance movies because of just his gravitas here. He's incredible casting for a number of reasons because he's just an actor who can be so charismatic, so exciting, so electric. But for whatever reason, since 2014, has mostly been in directed DVD or you know VOD exile. money problems <laughs> money problems occasionally popping up to do great work in stuff like doggy dog or uh, mandy or colorless space but i think pig gets this added resonance for fans of cage because you're watching this person who is in an exile of sorts playing another creative type in a self-imposed exile who over the course of the narrative returns to his old stomping ground and reminds people why he is the best at what he does yeah. um there's a lovely meta quality to it but also cage is a man who likes to go big to the extent that you can watch a five-minute compilation of all his performances on YouTube titled Nicolas Cage Losing His Shit. And yet, in Pig, his character is so composed and coiled and tight and determined. Like, he's got this vice grip on his emotions that if he ever let go, all the pain would just come, like, pouring out. Mm. And it's just really smart casting to put, like, the most explosive star to play this restrained character always simmering with anger and pain because even if the character uh, never erupts, we know that the volatility is there because of Cage's history, if that makes sense. Mm. And um, yeah, the movie gets a lot of attention out of you thinking Cage is going to blow his top at someone, but instead he just delivers an earth-shakingly devastating monologue, simultaneously eviscerating this person's existence, but also imparting onto them all the lessons he's learned in his storied life. Just The best part of the movie is the scene where he goes into this pretentious restaurant which um, takes local food and deconstructs it to make it seem foreign. (laughs) And um, its head chef was a former pupil of Cage's character who's uh, named Rob. In in the scene, we come to learn Rob was this legendary chef and Rob says to him after he asks him about the truffle pig, he's like, he's looking at the food and he's like, do you like cooking this food? And the guy's like, yeah, it's interesting. And he's like, do you like it? Didn't didn't you tell me your dream was to run an English pub? And the chef suddenly gets very oddly emotional about it. Like Cage's character has like touched a nerve, mm. bringing back this kind of repressed dream of his. But he's he's still trying to keep a straight face and appear strong in front of his idol. Uh, but he sort of, there's one point where he sort of snaps and is like, no one wants English pubs. It would have been a terrible investment. <laughs> and Cage says in this like low grumble and I'm paraphrasing like, they're not real. The critics aren't real. The customers aren't real because you're not real and then he adds like why do you care about these people they don't even know you because you haven't even shown them every day you'll wake up and there'll be less of you you live your life for them and they don't even see you you don't even see yourself and then he just takes a pause he's like we don't get a lot of things we really care about and you're like oh my god (laughs) (laughs) and um i saw this someone point this out on imdb but while the chef is deconstructing food cage is just deconstructing this whole man's (laughs) life um and the movie's you know filled with kind of clever details like that there's a lot of allusions to greek mythology as well in terms of its more kind of humanist streak you know while typical vengeance movie would end with the villain of the piece being massacred in a brutal way in plague through kind of plots and circumstances i won't get into cage's rob realizes that threats won't work with the antagonist and winds up taking a different approach preparing the bad guy a meal that's of tremendous significance to him and the bad guy takes a bite of it and just cries <laughs> and you realize that even the villain of the movie is a real person with layers who is actually working through a similar trauma to cage's character and i just can't get over how this movie starts with one simple idea you know one goal for its lead character i want my pig back and becomes so existential and so much about like human everyday struggles it's, it's really beautiful and um i should say that like Coming to Pig's closing moments, you're wondering, like, how could a, a last scene, like a final you know, shot, put a bow on all of this? And instead, its final scene is kind of similar to another round in that it's you know, tied to music, 
although Pig it's a lot more kind of quiet and intimate than what a life. Um, <laughs> also more importantly, it does the incredibly wise thing that another round does where, you know, it doesn't try to give simple answers to the stuff it raises. Instead, it just ends with this moment that's left with the viewer's interpretation, but is also so transcendent and feels so massive for its character that it's just right. Yeah. I think you'd particularly love Pig and I think you'd love the music drop at the end. <laughs> you we'd, We talked about Rise of Justice as well, but I think Rise of Justice and Pig are similar would make a good companion in that they're both vengeance movies that sort of end up becoming oddly life-affirming yeah but i also was thinking of uh, i just wanted to spotlight another movie that uses revenge film tropes to get at deeper themes was my favorite irish movie of this year which is rose plays julie which centers on a college student named rose played an amazing aunt skelly tracks down her birth mother only to discover some very troubling news about her birth father played by aiden gillen and then she um ends up tracking him down and getting to know quality surveyor aiden gillen <laughs> she then tracks him down and gets to know him without revealing who she really is and she tells him her name is julie which was her original birth name hence the title rose plays julie saw this virtually at the guy film flan 2020 loved it then was delighted finally got a summer release in 2021 it's a real icy movie shot in an almost like michael haneke-esque style and that takes place in these seemingly ordinary environments but somehow you just feel this like pervasive sense of dread mm. At its heart, it's this really smart drama exploring topics like identity and the disguises that people wear every day. But also you constantly feel like it could tip over into like a horror or thriller. I really loved it. Um, anything you're looking forward to next year? Well, no, there is, but I can't think of them now. Nope. The Jordan Peele movie? Ah, uh, maybe. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I'd need to see more first. You know, yeah. I need to have at least a one sentence synopsis. Nope is the one I'm most looking forward to. I'm also quite excited for White Noise, Noah Baumbach's Don DeLillo adaptation. Oh, yeah. I'm looking forward to Rebel Ridge. Yes. Jeremy Sonia's yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, just before we end, I want to kind of spotlight, Um, I got a chance to speak to the co-writer and director of Lamb, uh, Valdemir Johansson. You know, Lamb stars Numi Pass, who we covered last week. Really interesting movie, kind of a cool blend of family drama, folklore, and horror, kind of exploring some interesting topics like the uneasy relationship between humans and animals, you know, like how humans can see animals as family members, but others as objects uh, or products, you know. It also feels like it's probing that kind of like classic kind of nature versus nurture debate. So it's a real cool movie. I only got a chance to speak to him for 10 minutes, was part of a junket, but um, yeah, you can listen to our conversation. I thought it was interesting. We're not going to be back until the end of January, but happy Christmas and yeah. Merry... Happy Christmas and Merry New Year. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> Many happy returns, Stephen. Yes. And I uh, just want to thank everyone for who's listening to the yeah. show throughout the year. Yeah. Um, it, it's always people, fun. Always nice when people come up to me and are like, oh, yeah, that was a great episode. Yeah, it'd be nice if people actually came up to me and said it. But, uh, hey, <laughs> I get it a good a bit. Um, <laughs> Look at you. <laughs> rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Email I know the at gmail.com. Uh, follow us Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks to Charlene Fernandez for editing and helping out running our socials. Our guardian angel. <laughs> if you love the show, please consider donating five euro a month to us through Headstuff Plus. You can find ex- special exclusive bonus episodes and your work. People find more your work. You can find me at the Headstuff Gaming section where we talk about what we play, why we play, and how we play it. Look for our best of the year list coming out oh, 30th, 31st December. You can find me at the Headstuff Film section. Um, check me out at joe.e where I write about uh, news and the odd entertainment story. See you in the new year, Cinephiles. Bye-bye. How's it going? Um, great to get a chance to speak to you. Uh, I really enjoyed Lamb. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask, you know, as co-writer and director of the movie, you know, where did the idea for the human-sheep hybrid Ada come from? And through her, what themes were you interested in exploring? Because there, I think there's a lot of interesting topics being touched on in Lamb regarding family and human-animal relationships. You know, Ada was probably the, the first thing that 
I came up with because I was making like a mood board or like a sketchbook, you know, with some ideas or, you know, some mood because I wanted to make a film and I was trying to come up with some story. And Ata was uh, there from the beginning. I, I did a lot of drawing of her. And uh, so I think probably part of it is uh, because my grandparents were sea farmers and I spent uh, uh, my childhood there. So, you know, I, I think that is uh, like a one element. But also uh, it's probably like, you know, because I really like a lot of this uh, mythical things, you know, when, when you have some like half human, half animal, you know, I, I, there is something in that that I think is quite interesting. Yeah, and as well as, you know, Numi Rapaz starring in Lamb, you know, she's an executive producer on it. I was wondering how she became involved with the project, and I, I know you worked on Prometheus in terms of the special effects. Did you two have a connection from that? We didn't met, uh, you know, uh, at least we didn't talk at uh, Prometheus. But, uh, you know, me and my producers, uh, we had Numi in mind for a long time because we knew that she grew up in Iceland until she was six years old. And uh, so she speaks Icelandic. And uh, at one point, when we felt that you know the we were ready with the script, we decided to reach out to her. And uh, we didn't get any answer for a long time. But uh, I still remember when uh, we got the call, and uh, she wanted to meet us. And uh, we went to London and met her. And uh, after that meeting, she decided to, you know be a part of this project and we were extremely happy yeah and you know i think a lot of people will um come out of lamb wondering how aada the human sheep hybrid was brought to life can you can you talk us through that process we worked with an amazing team we were working with like frederick north and chimney pot in sweden you know company and peter hjort uh, was with us on set and uh, we worked with Ten children, four lambs, and uh, puppets. So we were shooting almost every scene with all these elements, and uh, in the end, it was uh, somehow melted together. Or you know, sometimes we could use what we shot, and but sometimes we have to use like a some effects, you know, to create. At the De- depends on which shot, you know. Then uh, you know, it's different. Was it strange having to direct actors to have this very strong, loving bond with this um, creation that, you know, isn't real? <laughs> what was that like? Everybody felt, you know, Atta was there on set. Because when you have uh, both children and lamb, somehow uh, you, I think just after, you know, like two days, somehow everybody felt it was super normal and, and just felt that Atta was there, you know. So... You know, I really like uh, how invested everybody was, uh, you know, the crew and the actors were. So somehow everybody just believed in, you know, that she was there. So it was not, the actors were not playing against some, you know, like a green screen ball or something like that. What was really striking to me about Lamb was how it, it definitely felt like a horror movie or a thriller at points. But then also, I think it sort of feels like a fable. But then for a large part in the middle, it sort of just becomes this domestic drama. 
like about a family, a dysfunctional family. And I was wondering, um, how would you classify Lamb and talk about the process of mixing all those different genres? In the beginning, our plan was just to make a film that we wanted to see and felt that we had not seen. And uh, for me, this is not a horror film, but you know, there are horror elements that I, you know, I, I agree about, you know, but uh, yeah, for me, it's just like a family drama or, you know, drama. It's a, it's a very classical story with one surrealist element. And uh, it seems to be very hard to, you know, put films in uh, more than one genre. <laughs> and I think it's so strange because basically it's just like a film, it's a cinema. And, you know, it's also some kind of folktale. Uh, so it is a mixed of, mixed of many. And the movie has such a strong command of tone and I was wondering, were there any movies that you were looking to as um, an inspiration for that? I feel like very quickly into the movie, we just totally buy the scenario and we understand everything. And was it hard to keep up that uh, illusion? There was never a moment where it kind of became too heightened or too crazy, I think. We watched so many films through this very long process. So, you know, it's maybe hard to take like one film out of, all of them, you know, because uh, you get like uh, inspiration from, you know, so many films. Also from just like uh, paintings and books and uh, like music. So I, I, I think it's hard to name like a, like a one film. Me and Sion, we started working together like 2009. So, you know, it's a, it's a very long period. <laughs> I, I think I know we only have like 10 minutes, so I just thought I'd ask at the end, is there anything you're working on at the minute that you can talk about, that you're excited about? I've started, you know, thinking about uh, some, you know, but I, I haven't not spent so much time working on it. And I, I don't know if it will be a uh, next project or because I don't want to spend so much time, you know, like I did on LAMP, you know, it's... It's a very long process, and I, I think I have to work a little bit faster, you know, for the next project, and uh, maybe just do something between, and just keep on working on what what I'm working on now, and uh, do something else between that, you know, is you know I, I would like to like some TV episode or music videos or you know, I I, I think that would be nice. Well, yeah, I look forward to more work from you. As I said, I really enjoyed Lamb. Um, uh, it's a real treat. Uh, I'd encourage people to go see it in the cinema. <laughs> Thank you so much. And uh, I really like talking to you. Have and have a nice day. You too. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.